This morning scripture is from the book of Ephesians, chapter 6, verses 10 through 24. Hear now the word of the Lord. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of the evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm, then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Pray also for me, that whenever I speak, words may be given to me, so that I may fear, will fairly make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly, as I should. Tychicus, the dear brother and faithful servant in the Lord, will tell you everything, so that you may also know how I am and what I am doing. I am sending him to you for this very purpose, so that you may know how we are, and that he may encourage you. Peace to the brothers and sisters, and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with an undying love. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Morning, church. We are ending our series on Ephesians, actually, today. Everybody together, awe. awe. Uh, we'll start something new next week. Uh, we've been calling this an identity crafted by grace, and what's interesting is, you know, we spent the first three chapters, for sure, just laying down the Christian identity, and um, you remember us saying that it was very light on commands. There's only one command in the first three chapters. I think Peter preached on that one. Remember, right? Was that the word? Um, Paul makes up for it in the second half of the book. He kind of just goes, there's a, he goes at a heavy clip with some, with some commands here we're going to look at in a minute. And so it might be easy for us to look at this passage and say, well, this isn't really about my identity so much as my activity. This is about what I'm supposed to do. But um, I think that the armor of God imagery here is, it's the grand finale uh, of what it means for our identity to be in Christ. And so we're going to go there. First, what we're going to do, though, is we're going to take Paul up on his exhortation to pray. Uh, there's a lot going on in our in our world these days, and specifically in our nation, and we want to spend a couple of minutes just praying for our nation. So I would like to ask you to join me as we do that together. Father, you know who we are, you know where we are, and you know what we need. You know what we need, and you know what we deserve, and you're so gracious, Lord, to not always give us over to what we deserve. You know, Lord, that, that we're told to pray for those in, in leadership, and, and uh, specifically, Lord, this morning, we want to pray for those who are vying for leadership in the coming days, in these crucial days for our country. Uh, Lord, we pray that there would be candidates at all levels of government who would seek righteousness and seek justice and truth, who would stand for the right things even when the right things might be wrongly received. Lord, we want to pray for ourselves as citizens and as voters, uh, even as we as Christians 
serve the orders of a different kingdom, a, a different king, a different rule. And so, Lord, we pray for discernment within that. We pray for discernment of truth from falsehood. Uh, we pray for opportunities that we would have to share our faith and to, to share the values of the kingdom in the midst of this election process. Lord, we pray that we would be angry about the things that you're angry about and compassionate in the places where you're compassionate, that our words towards each other, our assumptions about each other uh, would be seasoned by the gospel and driven by the gospel and basking in the gospel. Father, we pray for a heart of prayer uh, because that means, Lord, that we wouldn't approach this election season in our own strength, but you'd find us this week often on our knees, trusting not our wisdom but yours. We pray, Lord, for the results of the election, not just for ourselves and our own borders, but for the gospel around the globe, that we wouldn't simply look to our own, but we'd continue to be a, a country that gives its resources away for the sake of places that need them more than we do, Lord, that we also as a church could continue to be one that gives itself away for the sake of the gospel. Father, of course, we pray that the United States would, would turn and seek you first, seek your kingdom first. Again, Lord, you've accomplished great revival in our nation and in many other places, uh, you, you do it often and you can do it again and we know that we need it again desperately. We pray that you would be honored in the midst of this election, uh, not just in the way that we vote, but in the way that we dialogue about how we're going to vote or the way that we differ in how we're going to vote, the way that we treat one another, the way we trust you, the way we keep you primary. And Lord, so we pray that you would meet us this morning because all of this reminds us that we need, we need perspective, we need encouragement, we need hope, we need you, Lord. And so certainly today, Lord, um, we don't need my words. So Lord, this morning, not my words, but your words, and not my thoughts, but your thoughts. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So I remember when I lived in uh, Athens, Georgia, there was uh, sometime around Christmas, there was a story in the news that outside the local Walmart, there was a, um, an armed robber who tried to attack an armored truck, and he shot the driver, grabbed a couple of bags of cash, and ran into the woods. Well, this kind of ended up being a non-story because he ran into the woods, he didn't get very far, they got the money back, the driver was wearing a bulletproof vest, and so he was fine. Um, but what almost made the story tragic when they were interviewing these, uh, uh, the, the driver and his, his wife, um, it turns out that morning he had decided he wasn't going to wear the vest. Um, he, uh, if any of our officers here can tell you that those bulletproof vests are uncomfortable, they're heavy, they're hot, they're itchy, they're just, and he just decided he wasn't going to wear it that day, and his wife nagged him until he put it on, and it saved his life, Right? We often don't think that the armor is necessary until we're getting shot at, and then it becomes very obvious that we need the armor. This passage is saying, Christians, you're being shot at. They're not physical bullets. It's a spiritual battle, but there's stuff that we need to put on in order to stand our ground. Um, we're not going to, sadly, we're not going to be able to do justice to this passage this morning because there's so much in it. Um, and so I'm confident that at the end of this, you're going to feel like I left out something important, whatever it might be, your favorite part of it. Or and if you feel like I've left out something important at the end of the sermon, you're probably right. I probably did. I'm really sorry. Um, Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote on this passage, the passage that was just read, 
he wrote um, a book that was 373 pages just on this passage. And then he went back to just zero in on the stuff that he missed from verses 10 through 13. And that was another 363 pages as a sequel. So if you feel like I left something out, your homework assignment is to read Martin Lloyd-Jones. <laughs> because he got 700 pages and I get 27 minutes, right? So, um, so what I want to do is hang, um, hang the, the outline this morning on a few of the commands that we see in the passage. And uh, there's more than these, but um, with my attempt at a Roman shield, here are four of them. Stand, be strong, put on, and pray. Stand, be strong, put on, and pray. So first, let's talk about stand. And stand's not the first one that's mentioned, but I think it's the most obvious one that's mentioned because it's repeated so much. See if you can get the point of this passage, right? Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground after you've done everything to stand. Stand firm then. What's the point? What's he trying to say to you? It's really basic, right? (laughs) Stand, right? So he repeats that again and again because he's calling us here strongly to hold our ground, to be resolute and firm. And in a moment, he's going to talk about how we do that when we put the armor on. But before we put the armor on, we need to know what we're supposed to do with it when it's on. What we're supposed to do to stand. I love this quote. This is an old uh, Baptist theologian named Lewis Berry Chafer. And he said, it is interesting to observe that as pilgrims we walk, as witnesses we go, as contenders we run, and as fighters, we stand. See, the, the Christian journey, there's all kinds of biblical imagery about the journey that comes into it. And if you've been paying attention for the last couple of chapters, really, Paul's been using the imagery of walk. Um, it's often translated in the NIV as live, but it really is the word walk. Uh, but here he's shifting it because he wants us to see not just that the Christian life is a journey, a walk, but that the Christian life is, is a battle. And he wants us to take this hold your ground defensive posture in the battle. I thought it would be helpful um, to talk about helpful tips on how to fail in battle. Um, There are obviously many ways that you can fail in in battle. Um, (laughs) Never mind. I was going to say just ask the French, but then I thought that's really, I shouldn't say that, but I just said that, so I'm sorry. So, yeah. (laughs) Um, I'll mention two. Ready? The first one is this. I'm so sorry. If you're from France, I'm really sorry I just said that. So it just was there, and then it was awkward, and then it was, okay. Um, The first thing was, uh, the first uh, useful tip on how to fail in battle is being unaware that you're in a battle to begin with. Have you guys ever experienced, you've been, maybe you're playing your, uh, the people around you are all playing a game and you're not aware of what the rules are and you're you're out already and you didn't even know that you were playing, right? It's like a game of Simon Says where you're like, wait, oh, we started already? Oh, I didn't know that. So you you realize that you're, um, uh, that you're in something, but you don't know what it is and you've already lost before you have even begun the game because you're unaware that you're in it. So um, I love the way that um, uh, Isaac Watts put it in a hymn. He said that Christians sometimes think that they are, quote, carried to the skies on flowery beds of ease. That's in a hymn called Am I a Soldier of the Cross? He says, we just think that we're supposed to have it easy and then when the time of trouble comes, we go, that's not fair. Or we say, God, it's not supposed to be hard like this and we forget that God said, actually, yes, it it is going to be hard. The Christian life feels a whole lot less like a spa and a whole lot more like a wrestling match. This summer, our family vacation, we we spent an afternoon at Fort Ticonderoga and uh, there's a whole 
armory display there where you can see mortars and, and uh, cannons and there's muskets and pistols and a very impressive collection of, of bayonets, which really kind of gets your attention when you look at those. And, and 200 years later, it just struck me as ironic that I'm walking by all of this stuff in flip-flops, pushing a stroller on the way to the gift shop so that I can buy some ice cream for my, my kids. When you're looking at this stuff, you're contemplating this foot-long steel thing bayonet or whatever, and it, its design reminds you of the environment that it was used in. You look at it and you go, this was not made for time of peace. This was made for time of war. And I picture Ethan Allen issuing these things to the Green Mountain Boys as they're about to take Ticonderoga. He's giving them the bayonets to fix to their muskets. And, and, um, and one of the guys, one of the, one of the soldiers says, General, what are these for? And he says, well, son... One day, they're going to take these things, they're going to hang them on a wall so guys in flip-flops can walk by with strollers on their way to the gift shop and buy an ice cream for their kids, right? That's not a rousing speech. <laughs> that won't charge you into battle. I pictured Braveheart. I thought this was, uh, they may take our lives, but one day, there will be a gift shop. <laughs> okay, <laughs> what's really funny is between services, Stephanie Ward came up to me showing me a picture on her phone of her at Sterling Castle in the William Wallace exhibit in the gift shop. So I thought that was, <laughs> that's awesome. So, um, so you look at these artifacts and you realize they're not meant for time of, of peace. They're meant for time of, of war. We need regular reminders, Christians, that we're in a war, that we're in a battle. And I picture Paul kind of metaphorically holding up the bayonet and saying, Christians, you're, you need to engage the fight. This is what you were made for. This is the environment that you live in. It's not a spa. It's a wrestling match. And in fact, he even uses the word, there's lots of words he could have used for the word struggle. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. But he doesn't use words for battle or fight or war. He uses the word for, it's a wrestling term. It's the only time in the Bible it's used. But it's used for, it's, it's hand-to-hand combat. He wants to remind you that the battle isn't out there somewhere. This isn't a fight that you're going to win with, with laser-guided missiles and drones. This is something that's right up under your nose. It's, it's right in front of you. He wants to remind you that the fight is right there. The other obvious way to, to lose in battle, to fail in battle, would be to be unclear who the enemy is. And so he tells us, verse 12, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. He's not saying that there are not earthly struggles too. Because there are. And he's actually said earlier in this thing to beware of these deceptive teachers and that guy over there. And There's obviously things that are, um, uh, that are not spiritual in nature that we also need to recognize as enemies. But the point here is the overarching nature of this whole thing is spiritual. Folks, you have an enemy. You may have more than one enemy. That's not my business. But you have at least one enemy, right? And that enemy um, has studied you well. He knows you well. Kent Hughes puts it this way. He says, imagine that you would, you would call yourself not good at math. But if you went and you got a four-year degree in math, you'd probably come away feeling like you're a little bit better at math than you were when you started that degree, right? What if you went and got your PhD? We would probably all consider you an expert in math. What if you spent 70 years of your career working in the field, just basking in the field of mathematics? Would you not be an expert in that? What if you had several millennia to study mathematics. Safe to say you'd be pretty good at it. Satan has had several millennia 
to study the human condition. Human nature, human weakness, human subversion. He knows how to make deception look attractive, desirable, even legitimate. He knows how to bait the hook. He knows how to drive the wedge. He knows how to break down communication so that we talk right past each other. He knows how to make your Facebook post be interpreted in the worst possible light instead of the best possible light. He knows how to mask himself behind the scenes so that we think this is the target and we're hitting it, but really it's over here. He knows how to do all of these things and to part in the old movie reference here. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world that he didn't exist. The great theologian Kaiser Sose. Um, not if you got that movie reference. This, if not, I just didn't want it to be entirely lost on, okay, thank you, Alex. Thank you, Adam. I see those hands. All right. Um, our enemy is invisible to us, and that makes him all the more dangerous to us because if we don't see the enemy, then we forget that we have one. We forget that we're in the fight, and then we start picking different targets for the enemy. We confuse who the enemy is. I think it's true this week. Think about how paradigm shifting it would be if we remember in these final days running up to November 8th and the election that we're engaged in a battle that is underneath the battle. There's a battle underneath the obvious one. Because behind the scenes of deciding what we're going to do November 8th, we might be missing what November 8th is doing to us. I know for many of us it's made us more fearful. It's made us anxious. It's made us angry. I think worst of all, it's made us angry at each other, even within this church. Or at least edgy around each other where we start avoiding people in the hallways on Sunday morning or feeling like we have to walk on eggshells in our life group. We don't know how to have these discussions very well, and so there's a lot of emotion, I think. There's a lot of misunderstanding. And I gotta be honest, just... I spent, my wife will tell you, I spent four or five hours this week trying to figure out how I was going to say this concisely and diplomatically. And just, so I threw out several like sermon length drafts of just what I was going to say about the election. It was very therapeutic for me. Um, It probably wasn't going to be very helpful at all for you because here's what happened. It was all self-incriminating. I'm saying, listen, don't be, don't be um, edgy. Don't be fearful. Don't be anxious. Don't be angry. And guess what all of these drafts were? They were, yeah, they were fearful, anxious, angry, and edgy. So I'm just going to say this, and maybe I'm the only one that needs to hear this. But I don't think so. Folks, we're the church. We are the people of the kingdom of God that is an everlasting kingdom that marches on. Kingdoms have risen. Kingdoms have fallen. The church has endured. And as the people of Stonebridge... We are this thousand soldier outpost in the kingdom of God that's meant to reflect the unity of the body of Christ by our love for one another, by our common mission to extend the kingdom of God and to pursue the Lord. That's who we're called to be. Fix your eyes on that. And don't let secondary issues become primary so that they steal your hope. I will quote from Russell Moore in his book Onward. It's a great book. He says this, it would be a tragedy to get the right president, the right Congress, and the wrong Christ. Be involved in the process, absolutely, but don't forget where your hope lies and don't let it rattle you. Don't get confused about who's on the throne and whose priorities we serve. And so for the next nine days, can I just encourage you to do this? 
pray, be knowledgeable on the issues, treat each other respectfully, live out what you're called to do, which is to love the Lord your God and to love your neighbor as yourself and then vote your conscience and do not fear. Amen? Amen. You're not allowed to clap during debates, but you can clap on that one. That's okay. All right. (laughs) Folks, our hope is not attached to this event. It's an important event, but it's not our hope. Fix your eyes on your hope. So stand. Recognize that there's a spiritual enemy that's at work in our lives and then stand against him. And again, then these next commands tell us how to do that. I'm going to take the next two kind of at a a clip, if that's okay. Um, We'll take them both together. Be strong and put on. You could add the one, there's another one in there, take up the helmet, you can add that to it as well. These are commands that we, we do something, but they're actually not as active as you would think. In fact, that word be strong, in the Greek it's actually in the English too, it's, it's a passive verb. If I were to say to you, be strong, if I were to say, Dave, be strong, well, how is Dave going to interpret that? Be strong, get a spine, buck up, toughen up, F3, right? Be strong. It's about his strength. But what if I say, Dave, be strengthened. Dave, be made strong. Do you hear the subtle difference in that? Because what I'm saying there is it's not about his strength. Be made strong. In other words, the strength is coming from somewhere else. Be strengthened. The strength is coming from from somewhere else. It's not from him. It's the understanding that this strength is external to us, right? It's not our strength. It's God's strength. So glad that that's true because if it was my strength, that's laughable, right? But it's not mine. It's his We don't make ourselves strong. We're made strong from a source outside ourselves. So it says there, be made strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Just to give you an idea of what that strength is, if you were to go back to Ephesians chapter 1 and look at verse 19, you would see the same exact phrase used to describe that power. And it says this. It says that that incomparably great power for those who believe is the same as the mighty strength, same phrase, same words, the mighty strength that God exerted when he raised Christ from the dead. Ponder that for a moment. There's a song we've sung here a couple times. There's a lyric that says, the same power that rose Jesus from the grave lives in us. That's astounding. The same power, not, not your power, his power. The same power that rose Jesus from the grave is in you. That's the power that we're told to stand in that we're told to be strong in. Be strengthened. Receive strength from outside of yourself. It's his power. And listen, that makes sense, right? I mean, we get that. Be strong in the Lord, in his mighty power. That makes sense. But if that's so clear, then why does so much of the teaching on what's going to happen next, the armor of God, focus on our efforts, focus on, on our own resolve, There is, needless to say, the Armor of God passage is a popular passage, right? We were looking for bulletin cover art, and it was, there was a lot of cheese out there when we were looking for that. We actually, thank you for Ruth Ann making her own, she made that shield. I really like the the shield there. Um, There's a lot of sermons on this stuff. There's no shortage of teaching on the Armor of God. But unfortunately, a lot of it, the armor represents some form of our own resolve, not God. Let me try and explain. Have you ever sat under a sermon like this? Have you ever heard some teaching that goes something like this? Let me put the armor up here for you. There it is. And it goes something like this. Put on the belt of truth. That means that you have to study people 
to show yourself approved, you have to know the truth. You have to be able to spot the truth. You have to know the truth from a counterfeit or you have to deal truthfully in all of your dealings, right? The breastplate of righteousness. If I act righteously, then that will protect my heart from attack. The feet that are shod with the readiness of the gospel. What's that? It's evangelism, right? Always be prepared, you know, with that track that you can pull out at a moment's notice and share your faith. Always be ready to give uh, a, a defense of the hope that's within you. Just always be ready at any, at any given time to, to uh, present the faith. Uh, the shield of faith. Live confidently. Don't doubt. Now, should, let me stop for a minute. Should you live confidently? Should you share your faith? Should you live righteously? Should, should you live truthfully? Should you seek to know the truth. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right? That's all fine application, secondary application of the armor of God passage because those passages are all throughout the scripture. Those commands are, are there. So don't get me wrong. That stuff is all important. But our danger is that when we're thinking about this as it relates to the armor of God, we are putting on our strength, not his strength. As an extreme example, I remember uh, a friend of mine telling me once that when something goes wrong in his day, the first thing that he does, he goes back to thinking about his armor of God prayer that morning to see if he left anything out. He said, I have a, I actually mentally put on the armor every morning after I shower, I get out, I put on my clothes, and then I, I mentally put on all the armor. And, and if something bad happens in my day, then I assume that I must have forgotten one of the elements of, <laughs> it's like leaving the leaving the house with your coat off or something like that. He said, I must have forgotten something. There must be a chink in the armor somewhere that left me vulnerable. If this passage is talking about my truth, my righteousness, my faith, my peace, then what do you do with the last two? The shield of that, sorry, the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit. That one's pretty obvious, right? It's not my salvation, it's his. It's not my spirit. It's, I don't provide anything for either of those last two, right? So it's best for us to interpret the entire set of armor that way, that this is about his truth, his righteousness, his peace, his faith, his salvation, his spirit. It's about him. You do not stand your ground through a more vigorous performance of your own good deeds or greater willpower or resolve. You stand your ground through confidence in God's provision. If you don't remember anything else I say this morning, don't let it be the William Wallace quote. Let it be this, right? You stand your ground through confidence in God's provision that he's already given. I like the way that Brian Chappell puts it. He's a pastor and theologian in in St. Louis. He says this, our armor is faith in what God has already provided for us. God has already put the armor in place. Folks, ponder that for just a minute. As Christians, you are already wearing the armor. We stand firm because God has already supplied our armor, not in order to receive the armor. We stand because we are confident in what God has done, not because our confidence, of our confidence in, doing, in our doing what God requires. The armor is confidence in and dependence on God's provision. And when I put that on every day, that really is just a battle image of doing exactly what Rick preached on a few weeks ago back in chapter 4. In verse 24, you can go listen to that sermon later, but it says there that we're to put on the new self. 
It says, put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. We're to put off the old self. We're to put on the new. And now Paul says, let me describe to you what putting on the new self looks like. And I'm going to use battle imagery for it. I'm going to talk about the armor of God. If you're a believer, your new self is in Christ. Look at verse uh, Galatians 3.27 says this, for all of you were baptized. Um, all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. The belt of truth is not my truth. Jesus is my truth. The breastplate of righteousness isn't my righteousness. Jesus is my righteousness. Christians, you are now at this very moment clothed in the righteousness of Christ. It says that in Colossians 3.3. It says you've died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. So let me ask you this then. What is your role? Because... These are commands on this shield. It's, Paul's telling you to do something. You don't just sit back and go, hmm, this armor feels comfy, right? You, you're called to do something. We're told to put on the armor. We're told to take up the helmet and, and the sword. There is an action required. So what's the, what's the action? I think the best way to describe what you're called to do here, the way that I think of it when I'm putting on the armor of God, is that I am preaching the gospel to myself all over again. That's what uh, Jerry Bridges describes what that looks like. He says, to preach the gospel to yourself means that you continually face up to your own sinfulness and then flee to Jesus through faith in his shed blood and righteous life. I'm fleeing to him for his righteous life. When I preach the gospel to myself, what I'm doing is I'm appropriating the reality of who I am in Christ. I'm appropriating the reality and I'm saying I'm gonna believe it I'm going to own it. I'm going to wear it. I'm going to define myself by this. I'm going to let it permeate my identity. I'm going to live forgiven. I'm going to live loved. I'm going to live in the awareness of what Jesus has done, is doing, will do in my life. It looks something like this, I think, and here's, this is Brian Chappell again. He says, when the day of evil comes and our temptation is great, we should not say, Satan can't touch me because I've been truthful, righteous, and faithful. Rather, we should say, I am protected by the truth that though I feel weak, I'm strong. Though I may fall, I possess Christ's righteousness. And though I'm not perfect, I have peace with my God who has provided the faith that I could not conjure, the salvation I could not earn, the spirit that I daily need. You see, he's just preached the gospel to himself. And so in armor of God terms, if you want to think of this in terms of your armor of God prayer in the morning, it might look something like this, I think. Lord, I am prone to mess up this day with all sorts of falsities, but you are my truth. Lord, I am not righteous, but Christ stands in my place as my righteousness this morning, and I'm, I'm owning that. Lord, my feet are dependent today on your gospel, and they stand in readiness that I would believe the good news and that I would walk in it today. Lord, I am placing my faith one more day in your son. Lord, I'm trusting your salvation, which you provided in Christ. Lord, I'm trusting that your spirit is at work in my life and that your word is active. See, I've just put on the armor when I've said those things. I've reminded myself of the gospel. I've put my confidence in it all over again. That's the Christian's identity. Do you want to have an identity, as we've talked about in this series, an identity crafted by grace? then define yourself by these things. Cling to them. Let them define you. And by the way, if you were to go back and listen to our whole sermon series again or go back and read the book of Ephesians again, you would see that all six of those words that become pictures of the armor are all topics that he has heavily 
covered throughout the letter. And I wish I had time to go there, but it is enormous how much he's already talked about. Think about it. You go, oh, yeah, we've talked about that already. Truth and righteousness and peace and faith and salvation and the Holy Spirit. It's all, it, it, it's, it's all crucial to what the whole letter has been about. And he's just saying, now all that stuff I've just talked about, all your identity, wear it. Just wear it. Know that this is what defines you and own it and let it permeate who you are. I don't have time to go into each of the pieces of armor individually. I wish I did. There's a lot. I know some of you guys were wanting, you know, somebody to show up in a Roman suit of armor and we could show it off and all that. Um, It's Halloween and all. You could do that. But I don't have time to go there and to look at that. I want to take this. This is meant to be the high level view and we have to take it as a unit. But let me just say this about the armor just so you can picture a Roman soldier for a minute. I picture it this way. As Paul is writing these words from prison, he is looking on the other side of the bars and seeing a Roman guard there decked out in all of this armor. And he's thinking about as impressive as that armor is, it doesn't hold a candle to what protects me. And then he grabs and appropriates all of that imagery and he talks about how much more the Christian is protected in the righteousness and the goodness and the care of our loving Savior. That impressive armor is just a feeble illustration of the grace that covers me. There's a lot more we could do with those images. There's a lot more we could do with this passage. I'm going to skip to the last one, though, because uh, in verses 18 through 20, he, just like he repeated the concept of stand, here's the imperative that he gives us in, in this section. Pray. Listen to this. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. The Greek word there is just another word for prayer. So prayers and prayers. Um, with this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Pray also for me that whenever I speak, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. In the beginning he repeats stand, now he repeats this word pray. When we pray, we believe this. When we pray we are engaging the war in the heavenlies. We're not just praying for our own personal sanctification, although that does accomplish some beautiful things in us, but we're praying because we are engaging the fight. What do we pray for? He repeats the word all here. Basically, he says everything. You pray for all sorts of prayers, for all kinds of occasions, for all the Lord's people, and then specifically, he gives them some some prayer requests. we're We're looking into Paul's personal prayer requests here. Paul's keeping in touch for him, right? It says he asks them to pray for courage. Twice, he says, pray that I'd be fearless. He asked that when it's time for him to speak, that God would give him his words. But I noticed that this week, I just, by, sometimes you miss what's, what's not, what's omitted. There's a prayer request that's very obviously omitted here. He does not ask to be freed from prison. I gotta be honest, that would be at the top of my list, right? <laughs> he asks some beautiful things here, but he doesn't ask to be freed. Instead, he gives us this phenomenal, beautiful term. He calls himself an ambassador in chains. When we did the book of Acts, you remember how Paul ended up in prison at the end of the book of Acts. And we know that he's right where he wants to be. He's right in the heart of Rome. He's right in the center of it. He's he's in the middle of the known world and he gets to now be an ambassador for another kingdom. Think about the contradiction in terms, an ambassador in chains. An ambassador gets to go wherever he wants to go. He's got diplomatic immunity. He can go wherever he wants. A, a, A prisoner in chains doesn't. But he recognizes that it's his very chains that have given him the opportunity now to be 
that ambassador in Rome and beyond to be able to speak on behalf of a, of a different king and a different kingdom. He engages his, um, what I love here too, is that he, he engages some, some backup support for his own spiritual battle by asking the Ephesians to pray, and, and that's a reminder that we can do the same thing. I've certainly done that this week as I've been working on the sermon, just saying, I think I need some extra prayer on this one. It's amazing when you feel spiritual warfare when you're doing a sermon on spiritual warfare. Go figure how that happens. I don't know. But, but you know, you have this opportunity to engage backup in your spiritual battle just by simple things like the keeping in touch form. Let us know how we can be praying for you by the, the prayer corner in the back so that people can support you and pray for you. We believe that God hears and acts when his people pray. We believe that we engage the enemy when we pray. We believe that God does things that we can't even explain or imagine when we pray. And I just want to end with one example of that in recent memory. Um, about, I guess it was about three weeks ago we got this email from Caleb um, in India. And if you're new to Stonebridge, uh, our church supports 25 indigenous pastors in India that are uh, in these small villages in the state of Telangana working in very impoverished conditions, but also very hostile conditions. There's terrorists there are these rebels called Noxalites that come down from the mountains and mess with them, and there's Hindu fundamentalists and just a lot of people who just really want them out or want them dead. There's one particular guy here named Pastor Michael. There's a picture of him here. Caleb sent us this email on behalf of Pastor Michael. Pray for Pastor Michael in Rachapur village who is facing death threats from Hindu fundamentalists. Two days ago, they laid siege to his house and church to demolish it and burn Pastor Michael to death. They've cut electricity and they've pitched Hindu flags on top of the church. Okay, so that put things in perspective for me. I think that morning I was like, oh, the air conditioning's not working quite right here. Let me turn that, you know, or, or we're complaining about, oh, the parking lot's not draining correctly, right? We don't have a mob with torches surrounding our church. So it does put things in perspective a little bit when you read that. But I know me, uh, I, and the, the other people who had gotten this email, we, we prayed. We prayed for God to intervene. The next morning we get this email. This is astounding. Thank you for your prayers. God has done a miracle. The enemies of the gospel came around and sought apologies and gave it in writing that they will never come to attack and disturb Michael's work in Rajapur village again. He is not only safe, but he's experienced victory. This is incredible. I cannot explain this miracle. God is a prayer answering God. Folks, the terrorists wrote him a letter of apology. Huh? I mean, think about that. Let that, the terrorists wrote this guy a letter of apology. The terrorists said, you can keep preaching the gospel here. We won't bother you anymore. What is that? In fact, that's what I wrote to Caleb. I said, seriously? I just was stunned. And I I quoted the, it was right after I'd preached the the sermon on um, God being able to do immeasurably more than we can ask or even imagine. I sent him that verse and, and he wrote back. He said, I could not even believe, Kevin, that this could be possible. It's indeed marvelous. I was only interested in getting the damage minimized, but God has wonderfully done this for us. Thank you for your prayers. Folks, here we are on one side of the world. There they are on the other side of the world. And we engage the spiritual battle when we pray. We are not trusting our own strength or Caleb's strength or Michael's strength. We're trusting God's strength to intervene in that. We're trusting the strength of God's mighty power when we pray. And God does immeasurably more than we can ask or even imagine when we pray. We're about to sing a song that I hope will be an encouragement to you. And it says that. It says, among other things, whom shall I fear? 
The God of angel armies is always by my side. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. Let's pray. Father, you know that we so seldom are even aware of our invisible foe. And because of that too, Lord, we are so often unaware of our invisible armor. Lord, um, we do not want to live our lives thinking that we are due being lofted to heaven on flowery beds of ease. Instead, Lord, we, we long to engage the fight, to do what we were made for, to, to live out the church militant here on earth until you bring us home. So Father, knowing that you protect us, knowing that we're fully in your care, knowing that, that we're covered in, in Christ's righteousness, that, Lord, would be a great thing if you would allow that to make us a more generous people, a more grateful people, a more grace-filled people. Even as we give our tithes and offerings, Lord, we want to give it out of the abundance because we realize that we're talking about a security system that we could never afford the monthly payments on. But let that, Lord, make us generous. And we pray, Lord, that you would uh, be our strength today in Jesus' name. Amen.